Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so we, we uh, shared a whole bunch of stories about getting in trouble in school, and literally they were almost all about middle school band class. <laughs> Who else was in middle school band? Can we just like take a moment of silence for middle school band teachers? <laughs> oh my goodness. So the one, that I, the one that I had shared about myself was at a concert uh, that we had in school, like in the lunchroom or in the gym or something like that. Uh, the entire band ended on this big, loud note, and I, was, I happened to be standing to a good, next to a good friend of mine, um, and we were kind of chatting for most of the concert. But we were like, we were in it um, and when we needed to be. And the entire band at the end of the concert ended on one strong, like, double forte note. Um, and then there was me just one beat later. Uh, I thought we ended on one, and we ended on four. And so it was like the whole band, boom, and then me, my tenor saxophone, just this like quacking right after the entire thing. So Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Meyer at Cityside, um, he, she held me and my good friend uh, for, for lunch detention. Did we get lunch detention? I think we did. It wasn't on the record, though, so our record is clean. <laughs> Um, but, for, but for real, uh, so our, our, our sermon this morning, we're beginning a series. Yeah, a lot of people know exactly which friend I'm talking about in the room. <laughs> Derek. Just kidding, it wasn't you. It wasn't you. I'm just going to start shouting names until. Um, so our sermon series, uh, right now we're beginning a sermon series to the core values of Community Reformed Church. And the very first one is authenticity. There's a, there's a value to be able, being able to share, like, uh, share our weaknesses with each other and share where we've messed up and, and fallen short. And to begin this sermon today on authenticity, I wanted to share a story uh, about a guy named Shavarsh Karapetian. So go ahead and repeat that back to me. <laughs> Somebody, yeah, Shavar. We'll just call him Shavarsh. Maybe we'll call him Steve. Uh, no, so Shavarsh, and I think we have a, do we have a picture of Shavarsh up here? There he is. So he's the guy in the middle. Don't mind the guy on the left. Um, so this is the guy in the middle. His brother is on the left. Now, uh, Shavarsh was an Armenian fin swimmer, uh, which means he, he kind of didn't do great at regular swimming. So he just strapped a big old flipper to the bottom of his feet, and he was really good. Uh, he was like a, an Olympic level uh, Armenian fin swimmer, super well known for how fast he could swim with that massive flipper. Uh, like, it's kind of like a mermaid, right? You don't have two flippers on each foot. You got one that you put both of your feet in. So that's, that's Shavarsh. Now, what's, what's interesting about Shavarsh is during one of his training programs, he was running in the morning uh, next to this uh, nearly frozen lake. Uh, and he's running, and all of a sudden he hears this, uh, the sound of like metal screeching on metal. And he looks, and he sees a, a public trolley uh, off, of tr- off of the tracks. It's got the, the two poles that are connected to the cables up top, but it, it came off of the tracks and careened off of this bridge and into that frozen lake that he was running beside. So without thinking, Shavarsh runs to the shore, uh, and the trolley was going fast enough to end up 80 feet offshore. It begins to sink. So without thinking about it, he runs to the, to the shoreline and uh, he, t- he takes off his clothes and he jumps in. Uh, this, is, this is 80 feet offshore. So he swims there and he sees that this trolley is sinking. It's going down uh, and he sees the, the poles are still sticking up until those are no longer sticking up. The, the trolley rested on the ground about 35 feet beneath the surface. Um, at the exact same time, his brother happened to be on the opposite side of the bridge and he sees his brother get into the water. And he swims after him. So Shavarsh is treading water now above the, uh, above the trolley. And he knows what he has to do. And so he dives. Uh, he dives down to the trolley. He finds the, the pole and kind of pulls himself down. 
uh, but the, the, the trolley resting on the bottom kind of kicked up this murky, nasty black mud from, so he couldn't see a thing. And he found what he, could, what he thought was the biggest window that he could find and just with both feet just kicked that thing out. Uh, and when he did so, it shattered and cut both of his legs about, about from his ankles uh, to his knees. But he didn't care. Uh, he's, he's numb at this point, and he grabs the first person that he could find. This trolley had 92 people on it, most of them unconscious from uh, the crash, the initial accident. And so he, he does what he, what he knows he has to do. Uh, he climbs into the bus, he grabs one person, and he swims up the 35 feet as fast as he could, planting his feet on the top of the trolley and just soaring as fast as he could. His brother was at the top, at the surface. So he handed the, the first passenger off to his brother, and his brother swims him to shore, which by now has got uh, medical response at the shoreline, waiting for these passengers to be brought over. Uh, equipment is, is, is on its way to, to get the trolley up, but he knows there's not going to be enough time to save these people, so he dives again. I hope that wasn't me. So he dives again. Uh, but he's a, he's, a, he's a professional swimmer, so he knows he's going to hyperventilate if he doesn't make sure he gets the right amount of oxygen. And so he takes five deep breaths before each dive. And then he dives. He dove uh, more than 30 times this 35 feet into the bus. Uh, and eventually he realized for every breath he takes when he's at the surface, he could be losing somebody. And so instead of taking the five deep breaths he needed to keep himself from hyperventilating, he just takes a quick breath and goes back down. And by the time he gets to the bus, his brain is craving oxygen so badly that he grabs the closest thing he could and gets to the surface. Uh, Shavarsh ended up saving 22 people from that trolley accident. 22 people. He spent uh, 46 days after this accident in a coma because of the pneumonia that he got and the, hyper, uh, the, the hyperventilation that happened and the hypothermia. And then because the water had kicked up all this nasty, murky mud, the lacerations on his legs became infected and he got a blood infection. He was in a coma for 46 days after rescuing 22 people from this trolley that had careened into a frozen lake. Now, I, I say all this because uh, often we, we, can't, we, we often have people that we look up to uh, and we have people that we look to who, uh, who we think, man, there's no way that we could measure up to somebody that incredible. And you look at Shavarsh, who was just kind of this average Joe, uh, and, and you look at what happened and you think, there's no way I would respond that way. There's no way I could rescue that many people. There's just no way. Part of authenticity is recognizing that we can't be comparing ourselves to who other people are, but recognizing that in all of our brokenness, we are exactly who God has created us to be. And uh, I'll just lay out the entire message for, for us right now. Authenticity is recognizing our brokenness and giving it to God, knowing that he values us right there. We're going to dive into authenticity by, by kind of entering into the book of Romans. I think that is me. I keep hitting that. Um, chapter 12, if you, want to, if you want to turn to the, to the passage in your Bibles at the tables, that's the NIV. I'll be reading out of the ESV. Uh, but before we jump into that, I want to jump into uh, Romans was written to the church in... Anyone? Rome, yeah, that's right. It's super easy. That's straightforward. Easy. That's an easy answer. Uh, so I want to dive into to what Rome was kind of like. Uh, Rome, uh, Rome was the, the capital in the area. And just, just for a minute, uh, it was about five square miles. I want to invite you just like close your eyes for a minute and then imagine with me uh, you are at O'Hare Airport or, or any airport. And it is literally, uh, it, is, it is shoulder to shoulder 
with people. It is just lined with people. If you've ever traveled through an airport, like right before Mother's Day or Thanksgiving, I mean, there are just people from all over the place, so, so tightly packed that you can like taste in the air if the people around you haven't showered that week. You can just imagine that the the noise, the rumbling and mumbling of the crowds uh, makes it so you can't hear anything else except for their voices. This is kind of like what Rome was like. A lot of scholars believe there's probably close to a million people uh, in the city of Rome. There's five square miles, people from all over the world. Now, Emperor Nero was the emperor at the time that Paul wrote this. And Nero was thought to be one of the most uh, sinister and and diabolical, nasty emperors that there was. Uh, So much so that he would take take people, and Christians especially, and put them uh, in his gardens uh, on fire to provide light for his gardens. He would kind of use them as, as street lamps. Uh, and if you lived in this area, uh, pretty much any religion was tolerated, so long as you also worshiped the emperor, right? So if, uh, if you worshiped Baal or Asherah uh, or any number of gods, you had to at least recognize the divinity of the emperor. So for Christians and Jews, that probably didn't bode well. Because uh, in the Jewish and Christian belief, we believe in one God. And we see this in history uh, as the, the Jews were kicked out of Rome a number of times. And we see this in the persecution of the early church uh, in Rome. This is the culture that Paul is writing into as we dive into the book of Romans. So if you join me, Romans chapter 12, just, just the first eight verses, we're going to fly through them and then kind of back up. So Paul says this, uh, I appeal to you, therefore... My brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members don't all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So let us use them. If prophecy uh, in, in proportion to our faith, if service in, in, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Father, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you that this letter was written almost 2,000 years ago and is as relevant as it was then today. We pray that you would uh, lay this word on our hearts and help us to leave here conformed to the image of your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, uh, some sermons uh, are, are a challenge. They include a challenge for us to do something, to respond with action, to, uh, to respond with compassion or mercy or justice, uh, to be uh, present and, and active in the world around us as ambassadors for Christ in our hospitality, in our relationships, in our, uh, in our careers. Uh, some sermons help to speak to our identities, not in responding with action, but as recognizing who we are in Christ. That is one of these sermons today. Uh, even though the, the very first verse, let's start working through this, uh, already begins to talk about being a living sacrifice. This first verse, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
I want to break that down uh, for, for just a minute. By the mercies of God, he's asking us to be living sacrifices. Now, he's not asking us to like uh, literally give our lives so that afterwards we would die. Uh, the the, the ancient, um, ancient Jewish population would often use sacrifice kind of figuratively for a lifestyle that we share. So what the readers would hear is Paul saying, I want you to live a lifestyle of sacrifice to the Lord. I want you to, to give everything that you have to God. Now, what happens when you sacrifice something at the altar? Is it possible to use that for anything else or is it dead? It's, it's dead. So what Paul is kind of saying uh, to, to his, his hearers um, is, is I want you to live your lives in such a way that you can't use it for anything else. That it's absolutely evident to the world who you belong to. Because I think sometimes, I do this all the time. When we meet somebody, uh, we kind of make sure to kind of withhold some identity. Like we don't immediately say that we're followers of Christ because right, if, they, if they don't like that, we want to be able to keep that from them so we can be friends. Uh, there's, it happens maybe not all of the time, but um, whenever I hang out with a, with a group of people, uh, and Pastor Trent was talking about this a couple of weeks ago, when you hang out with somebody uh, and they don't know that you're a pastor and, and they're, they're just having a, a great old time, uh, you know, saying all sorts of things, cracking all sorts of jokes. And then you say, oh, so what do you do? And you're like, um, I'm a minister. You see like blood leave faces because, <laughs> and then it's the, oh no, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I meant to go to church this past week, but I just, you know, we were really busy and you know, my, oh man, I've been at home and we have so many projects going. And it's like, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Sometimes we like reserve some of that uh, Christ-likeness just in case, because we kind of know deep down just how broken we are. And we're maybe a little bit afraid if we let that out, people might think uh, wrongly of us. I think Paul's encouragement is, is for our lives to be living in such a way that it is absolutely evident. And my question, just leading out of this, this very first verse is, uh, if we need to pretend to be somebody we're not, what does that say about the God that we worship? What does that say about the love, grace, and mercy of Christ if we, if we feel like we've got to kind of hide those things from each other? Paul is saying, I want your lifestyle to be one of, of worship. And we keep going, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by testing. You may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Uh, there's a little word, that, that word world, the Greek is ion, which is where we get eon from. What Paul's literally saying is, uh, don't be conformed to, to like this age. Uh, and what he's getting at is there's, there's this age and then there's the age to come. And that age to come is, is the new heavens and the new earth. When Christ comes back and we, we receive judgment and then we get to share in eternity, walking, talking, knowing, and loving the Lord. So that's, that's the age uh, to come. And he's saying, don't be conformed by this age, but as people who have received the Holy Spirit, I want you to be conformed to that one uh, so that what you're doing in this life now, basically you can just keep on doing that right into the new heavens and the new earth. Now, this isn't like uh, a letter of the law sort of thing, but something that's really helpful for me as like a spiritual discipline, I kind of ask like, and I fail at this all the time, is, okay, if I'm doing something and I think, man, this is probably something I won't be doing like in heaven, I should really think about whether or not I should do that thing. And that, that makes sense, right? And I fail at that all the time, and we all will. But what Paul is saying is you, are, you now have the ability with the Spirit to look like that kingdom, to look like that age to come in this current age. Oh, we keep on reading. For by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. 
And Paul's saying, uh, don't think too highly of yourselves. Now, this can easily kind of come across as we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't love ourselves. Like, it can easily be kind of twisted to say, you aren't valuable. Make sure you don't think that about yourself. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's actually flipping, uh, flipping the social world upside down as he's saying these things. He's telling us not to think so highly as our, of, of ourselves, but understanding that each and every one of us are equally valued in the kingdom. So he's writing to a society uh, that separates the rich from the poor. That separates the wise from the foolish. That separates the, the ones who are in from the ones who are out. Those born in a good religious line uh, or born in the streets. He's writing this to a society that values the healthy and neglects the sick. And I think if we are perfectly honest to look at the culture around us, that's pretty much the same thing that we do today. And Paul is saying, uh, which would absolutely flabbergast the, the, the sort of the, the religious righteous in saying, the least of these have value. Don't think too highly of yourselves, but with sober judgment. Paul is saying, we all belong as equal inheritance of this New kingdom. Let's keep on reading. Having gifts, verse 6, that differ according to the grace given to us. Let's use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So now Paul, is, he's asked the people who are reading this letter uh, to, to offer their lives uh, as a lifestyle of worship so that when people see them, they, they can clearly see, wow, those people are different. I want to be a part of that. Then he says, and every one of them, whether they were born in a Jewish bloodline, whether they, whether they were born uh, pagan or they were worshiping other gods, he's saying everybody, uh, everybody has the same value because we're all made in the image of God. Now he's writing to this, right, this super diverse culture. Uh, and he's just flipping the system upside down to say you are all valued, the least of these and the greatest of these. Paul is saying you have values. And then he expounds on what it means to be members because he believes that we are all gifted by God. And that's sometimes uncomfortable to say, because as soon as you say, here's where I'm gifted, the, uh, the, 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 what might happen is you might be asked to use that gift for the kingdom, right? And we don't want to do that. Um, so like, we often say like, hey, yeah, I've got, use me. I'm totally available. Use me. And then you realize it's making like coffee before the service. And you're like, actually, I don't really do before 930. Uh, you can use me anywhere else. And that's totally fine. Um, but what Paul is saying is that we've all been gifted, whether it's in teaching, whether it's in, uh, whether it's in generosity, uh, whether it's in wisdom. And he's saying a part of being the body means just using that stuff for the goodness and blessing of other people. And okay, here's where we kind of break this thing down because many of us believe we aren't gifted and haven't been called by God and we haven't been sent by God. Or if he's gifted me, uh, he, he can't really work through the brokenness that we talked about earlier. We talked about some silly examples, uh, but sometimes we really, really believe that even though we could be gifted here, there's no way God could use my past to bless others. See, here's what we do. We take what God has given us, the image of God, and we start to add and add and add to it. We create 
public profiles and images for everyone to see. We stuff our problems like deep down into our guts so that when we eat the donuts, it kind of just like piles on top and they never get let out. We just pile that stuff up inside. We sweep the dirt under the rug until it's so mounded, you can tell that something is just like sticking up under that rug. And then we pretend like everybody else doesn't have that exact same mound in their living room rug. We bury these things. But what is God after in these first eight verses? He's not after the rug that's covering that mound. He's not after uh, the image that we begin to create for ourselves. He's asking for us. In exchange for giving his son on the cross for each and every one of us, the thing that he wants in exchange is simple. He wants you. Like all of you. He doesn't just want the rug that's covering the mound of dirt we've swept. He wants the whole house. He wants the the dirty dishes that uh, have begun to to clutter uh, the the countertop in your kitchen. He wants the the piles of clean laundry that are in your living room, uh, in your bedroom, in your guest room, and in the laundry room. He wants all of that. He wants the dirt that's under the rug. He wants the door that doesn't quite shut right. He wants the, the nasty garbage under the kitchen sink that's attracting fruit flies. He wants the entire house. Okay, uh, does anybody have an iPhone in here? It's okay, you can, you can yep, yep. Um, can, uh, Lee, did you raise your hand? Uh, Lee, can you come here just really quick, just for a sec? Do you have your phone? Sure. Okay, so um, if I offered you just like 50 bucks for that phone, what would you say? Could, would, you, would you trade this for me? No. Well, okay, what if I offered you like $2,000? Yeah? yeah? Okay, well, so I actually, I have, um, see, these dollars are like, they're more sturdy because they're laminated. Okay. Uh, and, and Ben Franklin's face, see, these are $100 bills. Uh, his face, just look at it, he's like, he looks really good. Uh, and don't worry about it where it says not legal tender um, <laughs> and where it says play money. But I actually have, like, here's, all right, one, two, three. Um, and, they, you know, they're never going to, you know, they'll stick together, which is great because you'll probably end up with more than 2,000. Um, but you can, you can, like, take these and go into, go into the water with them. Um, I'm just going to keep putting these here. Uh, I actually, I kind of lost count. But you know what? This is probably around 200. Uh, can, do you want to, can I just have your phone with it for this? Uh, can I spend those anywhere? Why does that matter? <laughs> this is like $2,500. Okay. All right. Um, well, fine. If you're not going to give me your phone, just go back to your seat. Thank you. Thank you. See, you see, here's the point. Thank you, Lee. I give, give Lee a hand. Just, just give him up. Yeah, there we go. Here's the thing. Uh, I'm not saying that each of us is only worth $50, right? But if, if God has given us value and given us an image uh, and he's asking for that in return, then anything else other than this won't do. But what we've done is we've, we've kind of said, all right, I'm going to tuck that away so that nobody ever sees it. And I'm going to eat a couple more donuts just, just to like hide it so people can't see it. And I'm going to sweep it under the rug. And then we start to, to design this, this, this image about ourselves that's, that's like not broken and it's pristine and will last forever. And we start sharing that with other people. Uh, like we just like, uh, here, I'm going to give you guys, you can have, here, you take, you take that. Yep. We start giving this thing away, but no matter how many of, of these $100 bills that we have here, 
here, you can have, uh, there's probably extra in there for one. No matter how many we have of these things, they're not good anywhere because they're not legal tender. Like they're not the real thing. Even though they look better. Oh no, I'm so sorry, guys. I ran out. Oh, that's a bummer for you guys. Oh, this this one. No, you don't want this one. Uh, this one. This one can get crinkled. This one can get wrinkled and ripped, and you can't even go in the water with it. But you see what I'm saying? We begin to take what God has given us, uh, and we start to create and craft something that's not real. And God says, I want the thing that I gave you. We start to build this fake image about ourselves and we offer that what God says. No, I don't want the fake image. I want all of it. I want the, I want the brokenness. I want the sin. I want, all, I want you to bring all of it to me. Now, let's, let's take this back. Can we get that picture of Shavarsh up one more time? Uh, so once again, this is, this is Shavarsh. And uh, now that I've shared his story, we see him as a hero, right? He did an absolutely incredible thing, saved the lives of 22 people. Him and his brother did a wonderful thing. Eventually, uh, the, the people who arrived with the equipment to pull the trolley up out of the water, they did that. But if you ask Shavarsh what he remembers from that day, you see there were 92 passengers on that trolley. He remembers the 70 he didn't save. He remembers the names and the faces of the men, of the women, of the children who died in that trolley. When, when, when his brain was craving oxygen when he was 35 feet down because he didn't take the time to take five breaths, he grabbed the closest thing to him and got to the, got to the top and realized it wasn't a person. It was, it was the cushion to one of the seats. And he gets up there just infuriated because, because that was a life that he could have saved and he didn't because he didn't take the time. You see, he saved 22 people's lives, but in his mind, he, he missed out on 70 people. But all he had was himself. He was a good swimmer. But if he didn't take all of himself and dive down those 30 different times, if he didn't bring everything he was to the bottom of that lake, he wouldn't have saved those 22 people. He brought his insecurities with him. He brought his, his, uh, his, his frustration. He brought his anxiety. He brought, uh, he brought the, the, the thought that he's not going to be able to save them all. He brought everything that he was with him. And in his mind, what he brought was not enough because he remembers the 70 people he couldn't save. But then you talk to the 22 people he saved. And for them, he was more than enough. He was more than enough to save those 22 people. And the point is, like Shavarsh, wherever we go, we're going to bring brokenness. We're going to bring hypocrisy. We're going to bring sin. And God says, you know what? I don't want you just to serve. In fact, I want you just to offer your whole selves. I have died for you. That's just what I want in return. And we tell ourselves we're not good enough. But Paul says, think rightly about yourself. And thinking rightly about yourself is to know that you are made in the image of the Father of all creation. That is powerful. And if we think that's not enough, I don't know what is. Sometimes we think we're not good enough for God to use us, that we're not good enough uh, for God to want us. But the truth is, God wants us so much. He believes in that so much that he sent his son to die for each and every one of us on the cross. 
not just for our perfections, not just uh, for our manicured lives, but when we were dead in sin, he died for each and every one of us. And what he asks is just bring yourself. Bring what God gave you to the cross. We get to remember that sacrifice. As we share uh, in communion, this, this is a reminder of the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross for each and every one of us. When we feel like we're not enough, one of the ways that we get to proclaim the truth about ourselves is by participating in communion, receiving nourishment from the living Christ, the one who looks at each and every one of us and says, yeah, you are enough. That looks at each of us and says, yeah, I want you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after they had eaten, uh, he gave thanks, saying, Take, eat. This bread is my body, which is for you. And he's in a room of sinners. In fact, one of the people in that room is the person who's going to betray him. Another person who's, is a person who's going to deny him three times, even though he, he, he swears up and down that he's not going to. And in the same manner, uh, Jesus, after they had eaten, he took the cup after, after they had eaten. He says, take, drink. This is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. I want to encourage us all this morning in that when we, when we have that sinister feeling that we are not enough, remember the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite Paul up. Uh, one of the ways that, that we get to celebrate in communion is, is through intinction. So practically the way that this works, um, after I invite, I'll say, I'll say, come for all things are ready. And at that point, uh, when you feel led, you can stand up and we'll kind of come around this way and make our way back, uh, back to our seats. But as you, as you rip the piece off of that bread or, or break the, the cracker of, of gluten-free, the cracker of gluten-free, the gluten-free cracker. That's good. The cracker of gluten-free. Uh, re- remember what was given on the cross and let that truth speak into the feeling that I am not good enough. We'll, re- we'll receive communion and we'll kind of head back to our seats and we will continue uh, in worship. This bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. And this cup of blessing which we drink is the communion of the blood of Christ. This cup will be gluten-free. So if you've got a gluten-free or gluten allergy, um, sorry, this one will be gluten-free. Uh, you, can, you can share in this one without worrying about it. So my brothers and sisters, come for all things are ready.